Well, it's a real uh, treat to be with you today. And uh, for all the fathers and uh, sons and uh, mothers and daughters, uh, we get to celebrate a little bit of this whole idea of family and belonging and, and all of that. So as uh, Ken said, I'm the father of four sons. So our boys are 32, 29, 27, and 24. And so actually my uh, 32-year-old Andrew and his wife live in Riverside, California. And uh, my son uh, uh, Ian and his wife Tony live in Durango, Colorado. And they're both due on the three days apart, about the 20th. And so we're having twins by two families. And so... Um, yeah, my wife heads to next Tuesday, she heads to Riverside, and I head to Durango, and hopefully be there at the birth of our first grandkids, so that'll be an awesome thing, and um, yeah, and I am going to go golf today, because uh, I prefer to think about a prayer walking in the Holy Land, because um, I spend a lot of time saying, Jesus, help me find my ball, I don't know, it's over here somewhere. I just need some help. So um, I just want to honor my, uh, a couple of my friends here, uh, Garland and Susan Bruno. Uh, Garland is a member of the Confederated Tribes of the Warm Springs, former tribal chair, and we've been buddies for uh, 24 years since uh, uh, Daniel was a little boy. And they're in here somewhere. You can wave Garland or Susan. They're over here. And so uh, welcome today. <clears throat> So we were talking earlier about uh, Bend and uh, uh, what it was like here for Native folks uh, some years ago. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then uh, people say, well, what do you talk about? And I just say, oh, God, the Bible, Jesus, stuff. And so that's what we'll uh, talk around about today. And uh, in no particular order, so I don't have an outline or a sermon, so we're just going to do it Indian style. Because uh, we are great orators and the keepers of uh, oral traditions, uh, which is very non-linear, non-Western. And so we'll just talk in some circular patterns, and I'll throw a bunch of stuff out, and then we'll end up somewhere uh, when the bomb goes off on this clock right here. And uh, it'll start flashing at me. So my father is an Ogallala Lakota Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And my mother is a Sichangu Lakota from the Rosebud Sioux Reservation, which is also in South Dakota. So among Lakota people, you would greet in a more formal way by beginning and saying, Mitakuye Oyasi, which means all of my relatives or all of my relations. So it's a, it's a way of saying that I'm related to things above, I'm related to things below, and I'm related to, to things all around. I'm related to those who've gone before me, I'm related to those who are here now, and I'm related to those who are not here yet. So it sort of situates me within the context, within the framework of creation. And we have one God, one creator, uh, one God and one father of us all, one mother of us all. And so together as humanity, we stand in the image of that one creator. And so all human and non-human persons enjoy the pleasure of a loving God, of a loving creator. And so when I say, it positions me in a place of acknowledging the goodness and the love of the creator, of all that is and all that ever has been and that all that ever will be. So all that's wrapped up in that little expression, 
all my relatives. So because of what the Father has made possible for us in Jesus, I greet you today as your Lakota, uh, brother in Christ. And so for some of you, I'm your uncle. Some of you, you're my auntie, my uncle. Uh, some of you were my nieces and my nephews. So if we think about uh, the church in, in, in familial terms, uh, then I think that's a good sort of metaphor, a good image of what it means to be a Christ follower, to be connected to other people in this uh, context of community and the family. So I greet you that way, and uh, a brief uh, history. So I was born, uh, you know, speaking of this father stuff, so my mom left our reservation, moved to Pine Ridge. They met my dad. They got married. I was conceived. They got divorced. My mom moved back to the res- my reservation, uh, and so I was born among my mother's people. But I didn't meet my dad until I was in the third grade, and then I didn't meet him again until I was like 27. And then she married another guy, and he was an abusive, violent alcoholic. So my goal in life as a little boy was to get big enough to get a baseball bat and beat the shnikes out of him. And, uh, but they got divorced before I had a chance to do that. And by that time, we left the reservation, and we'd ended up in Oregon. And so I went from like grade 4 through grade 12 in this little all-white town in Silverton, Oregon. And uh, so we were like uh, one of the only native families. So it was kind of cool to be Indian at that time because uh, for those of you who are older, there was a movie called Billy Jack. And uh, Billy Jack was our like Native American gung kung fu kick butt karate hero movie star dude. And uh, so anyway, there was a lot of stuff going on in the 70s and Indians were cool if you lived off the reservation. Now, Indians weren't cool everywhere. But some places they were. So anyway, after high school, I went back to the reservation in 1972, and I participated in the takeover of the Bureau of Indian Affairs office building. So 600 of us were protesting the federal government's breaking of all of these treaties, some 700 treaties. So for eight days, we occupied this big government building, which is right on Pennsylvania Avenue, right across the the street from what is now the the Vietnam Memorial. So for eight days, we were surrounded by federal marshals and riot police and tear gas and dogs. And um, it was during that time that I began to open my soul toward hating white people, toward hating Christianity. Uh, And so I was going through it. I was 18 years old at the time. And so that was a, 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 a really formative time in my own life. So my mom had grown up Catholic, and I was a Catholic. I'd grown up in a Catholic church until I could outrun my mom, which is about age 13. And, uh, but we used to steal the wine from the back of the church, and we used to steal the communion wafers, and we used to steal money out of the offering boxes. So we weren't like really good Catholics, but that's sort of where we... So at the time, I said, if Catholicism and Christianity are synonymous, then fooey on Christianity. Because it was the Catholics who came and ran the boarding schools on our reservations in South Dakota among the Oglala and the Sichangu people. And so there was a period of U.S. history where all Native kids were forcibly removed from their homes and sent to boarding schools. So my mom, all my aunties and uncles, my dad, all his aunties and uncles, or his brothers and sisters, uh, from the time they were, my mom was five, and then so five, six, seven you were, they came to your home, took your kids, or they forced you to send your kids. So your kids were sent all over the country, uh, down to Chimawa in uh, Salem, Oregon. And I don't know where the boarding schools were out this way, but Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and Alaska. And, and so during that time, you have little kids who grow up under horrible situations. So uh, the Anglican Church of Canada ran the majority of churches in Canada. 
And uh, so they almost went bankrupt about 10 years ago because of, they were losing all these sexual abuse cases. So sexual abuse was uh, rampant in these boarding schools. They were both by Catholic and Protestant organizations. So with all that as a backdrop, I said, Christianity is not good to Indian people. And then through an experience of my own life, uh, drugs and alcohol, and, and so my story is in this book, uh, One Church, Many Tribes, which is for sale outside. And it's a good book, not because I wrote it, but it's endorsed by lots of famous white guys. And so uh, you can get famous white guys to endorse your book. There's, it's worth something. I'm not sure what. But anyway, so then I had this come-to-Jesus moment uh, on a beach in Maui, Hawaii, uh, on an overdose of psychedelic mushrooms when I was like 19 or something, or 20. So I just said, Jesus, if you're real, and you could do what these guys said, because these guys picked me up hitchhiking, and they witnessed to me. Nobody ever witnessed to me before. But I thought they were nerdy, self-righteous, little white boy, Bible-thumping, Jesus-freak punks. And I wanted nothing to do with their white man's gospel. So anyway, I'm all alone on a beach, 2 in the morning, and I'm just flipping out on these drugs. And I say, Jesus, if you're real, and you can do what those guys said, would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? And the fear and the paranoia left, and that's where I became a follower of the Jesus way. And that was in 1974. And uh, even though Jesus looked an awful lot like Captain Jack Sparrow, I'm pretty sure that uh, it was Jesus uh, of the Bible. So then that, that launched me on this journey of uh, becoming a follower of Christ. But after I became, so that was in Maui, then I moved to Alaska where I met my wife and we got married in, in uh, 1976. Uh, but it was a Christian hippie commune in Wasilla, Alaska. And we could see Russia from the commune. Uh, so then we lived there for a little while. But then I said to one of the pastors, one of the elders, what do I do about my native culture now that I'm a Christian? I don't even know why I thought to ask that question, but I did. So he said, well, let's see what the Bible says. So he turned to Galatians 3 at the end of the chapter. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free. Male nor female, uh, we're all one in Christ. So he said, so Richard, don't worry about your native culture anymore. Don't worry about being Indian anymore. Just be like us. So I said, right on, honky. Uh, no, I didn't really say that. In retrospect, it would have been a good response. But. So uh, here he was a pastor reading from the Bible, so I thought that's what Christians are. Conservative, evangelical, Republican, read the King James Version, all that kind of stuff. Raise your kids on James Dobson and lots of other distorted ideas. Um, so then I became a follower of Jesus, and then somebody told me that now that I'm a follower of Christ, I have to become a Christian, too. So then I had to decide whether I wanted to become a Wesleyan or a Calvinist or a dispensationalist or a covenantalist, whether I wanted to accept John Calvin into my heart or John Wesley or Martin Luther, um, and then which version of the Bible would I read, because I could read the Revised Standard Version or the New American Standard Version of the, I like the, the Indian Version, the NIV Version, uh, or I could read the King James. So I had all these theological positions, or I could become a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Pentecostal or Assemblies or Nazarene or Christian Missionary Alliance. So Christianity really complicated all of this stuff. So following Jesus was one thing. Being native and following Jesus was another thing. And then becoming a Christian was a whole other thing because I experienced Christianity as a very white Eurocentric reality. So there was that verse in, in the, the Bible that says that... Um, if you become a new person, if you become a Christian, 
You become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new, and all things become white. So, so I learned that, that the Bible says that God loves native people, but he doesn't like us. So he loved us enough to let Jesus hang on the tree, but he doesn't like our native music, our native drums, our sweat lodges, our eagle feathers, our dream catchers, our medicine wheels. He doesn't like our use of colors and imagery and clothing and fashion. He doesn't like our ceremonies and praying with sage or cedar or using the pipe. He doesn't like any of that, but he likes all the stuff the white people do. So in terms of liturgies and worship styles and dance and music and art and expression, none of our Indian stuff was good enough for church. And just the unbelievers did their cultural stuff. But when natives come to faith in Christ, they have to put off their old ways, the old man, and put on their new Christian ways, which basically meant being a Euro-American. So cut your hair, get a suit and tie, burn your drums, burn your regalia, and then learn the piano and the organ and come to Antioch. <laughs> and um, then you could be a good Christian. So, trying to help Ken think these things through here. <laughs> so that began a journey for me. What does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to be fully human and follow Christ? And in our humanity, whatever that means. So... That uh, served to launch me then into some other uh, ways of exploring the Bible, ways of reading the Bible. So uh, in the last few white man minutes, that was a long introduction. Because um, Indian minutes are like, you can bend them and stretch them. They're elastic. They're like, the white man minutes are rigid and static and legalistic and non-negotiable. They just are, right? And we make up phony things like saying, you know, God, you know, time and Christians are punctual and, and on time, and they're respectful. And if you're not, then you're, you know, you're disrespectful, you're unkind, you're insensitive, you're rude, you don't love people, just because you have a weird way of thinking about time. <laughs> but Indian minutes are loving and gracious and kind and forgiving and long-suffering <laughs> and compassionate and merciful and understanding and loving and forgiving. They're way more biblical <laughs> than uh, white man minutes. But anyway, so think about some things. There's a worldview. The way we perceive the reality, how we define the world around us, worldview. There's some very complicated and complex definitions of that, but think about it in these terms. So when the sun sets in the west, people brush their teeth and they go to bed because it's night. The sun rises in the east, they brush their teeth and they go to work because it's day. Are they observing two different suns, do two different things so that their lives are impacted in opposite ways? No, they're observing the one natural phenomena that one sun in our earth doing what it does to create these seemingly opposite realities, day and night. So what is it that makes our perception different, the way we perceive? So from this angle, the sun is coming up, but from this angle, the sun is going down. It's a matter of perception. Even though we're observing the same natural phenomena, it all depends on the angle from which we're viewing the event. And cultures are like angles. Like we have all ways of thinking about angles. So a simple example would be in a, in a typical evangelical church. On Sunday morning, you'll have an American flag on one side and a Christian flag on the other side. So American evangelicals have a unique blend of patriotism that's blended together with the Bible 
to create a unique kind of American evangelicalism. Uh, but in Canada, you never see Canadian flags in Canadian evangelical churches because they don't make the same kind of connection that Americans do with citizenry, nationalism, patriotism, so that our Christianity is very much woven into citizenry or nationalism. So for, for Native Americans, this, the American flag is not a symbol of liberty and justice for all. It's a symbol of oppression. So whose, whose perception of that is the most accurate? So one time, my, my wife, Catherine. Now, my wife, Catherine, is Welsh and Norwegian. So she is a white woman. If you look at her, you would have no mistake. She is so white. So I tell that all the time, darling, you are so white. She says, duh. So anyway, one day her and, uh, and actually I captured her in a raid because uh, uh, I read somewhere that's what Indians do in some uh, books in there. So, so uh, her and my son Ian are in this teepee at the Delta Park powwow. And Ian is about six years old and he's talking about his friend Johnny. And he says, mom... Uh, Johnny, he's a white boy, right? And my wife said, yeah, he is. Uh, but Ian, I'm a white woman. And Ian said, no, you're not. And my wife said, Ian, yes, I am. Ian said, no, you're not. So my wife said, Ian, look, I have blonde hair. I have blue eyes. I have very fair skin. I'm a white woman. And she said, like this little cloud of realization passed over his face. And then he said, no, you're not. And you better stop saying that or I'm going to tell dad. And then he said, he's going to spank your butt. <laughs> like powerful words for a six-year-old, right? So if you would have asked Ian the day before, is your mom a white or is she native? He would have said, she's native. So was Ian's reality based upon fact or perception? So Ian's reality was his perception. Ian's perception was his reality. But which is more real, fact or perception? So all of us have perceptions and perceptions that inform the way we consider the Bible. We have cultural imaginations about the way we perceive God as father, as male. We have Western American notions regarding capitalism and, and the hyper-individualism that, that sort of uh, captures the notion of a self-made individual who trusts God and does something with their life because we can, because we have options in America. We have these imaginations that are culturally informed. I went golfing with uh, Rick yesterday, our biologist, and so we were talking about creationism and the world and and I was taught when I came to faith that the world is 6,000 years old because the, that's what the Bible teaches. So a biblical creationist point of view is the earth is 6,000 years old. Well, I don't believe that anymore, and I think it's a fairy tale. I think it's one of those biblical myths that people come to believe is true, but really it's not. But because there's a certain way of reading it, you can do some math and generations and they're this old and you go backwards and you times and multiply. The earth is 6,000 years old, but, but it's not. But why do I believe that it is? So there are lots of things. Now, from, a, from an indigenous perspective, there are lots of things that the Bible was used to inform certain political 
and uh, uh, militaristic and all kinds of policies of the United States that we suffered as a result of a poor reading of the Bible. So I went to school. So I wrote this new book. It's available out there, too. It's called Rescuing Theology from the Cowboys. I knew I was coming to Ben, so I wrote it just for... Um, so it has to do with the idea of if, if whoever controls the dictionaries and the lexicons, controls the meanings and definitions of the words, then controls the conversations. And those conversations capture our imagination. So think about this. When Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So just do this experiment with you. Just close your eyes real quick and say, Our Father who art in heaven. What does the Father look like when you close your eyes? How many of you read The Shack? Did you just picture a large African-American woman? <laughs> I, I doubt it. And I doubt that you pictured somebody from the Middle East, maybe. But I guess that most of you imagined a European, old, white, Norwegian, big beard, kind of Da Vinci sort of God. So, so why are our imaginations captured when we read the Bible? Because we're cultural beings. And we can only think in terms of culture and imaginings when it comes to things like the Bible and God and Jesus and heaven and hell and, and all those other kinds of things. So I want to introduce some other imaginings coming from indigenous communities that I think will help enlarge our perceptions about the character of God and the work of the kingdom that we're, we're all so intensely sort of connecting to and trying to figure out how we do justice and how we love our neighbor uh, and with new immigrants. And, and what about sending people back? You know, this whole immigration thing, I know you guys think about that around here, but, but there was an old Indian elder one time, he said, we should have had stricter immigration laws. <laughs> then we'd be trying to figure out how to send almost all of you back. Where, wherever it is that you came from, because you're basically like long-term squatters. <laughs> but you have a theology for squatting called manifest destiny. And you have other theologies about discovery and terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery and the papal bulls and Pope Alexander who gave this part of the world for the extending of the kingdom of heaven. So Europeans came here riding on the back of a quasi biblically informed ideology appealing to the children of Israel in the Old Testament that they were the chosen people of God selected to go and inherit the promised land because they were fleeing political persecution, religious persecution, so they wanted to come to the new world where the gospel was not preached so they could establish the kingdom of heaven and help hasten the return of Christ. But there was one problem. There were some people already there. What do we do about that? So they said, oh, that's easy. They're like the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. They're those tribes that stood in the way of Joshua and the children of Israel from inheriting the promised land. That's who the Kiowas and Comanches and Warm Springs and Seminole and Lakota, that's who they are. And so we can just now go and establish the kingdom of heaven under the gaze of a loving God in Jesus Christ 
And we can pray that God will remove them through disease or whatever means necessary because they're all children of Satan and need to be removed so we can establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So there was this Indian problem. And so we've been the Indian problem in American history for a long, long time. So people say to me when I travel around the world, like, how could you even be a Christian when you know your history? When you know everything that the European people did to you, and then later the, the founding of America, how can you even be a Christian? That's like a huge disparity, irony. So I think that's where Jesus and the gospel comes into our lives. So Jesus said, it is possible to love your enemy. It is possible to forgive those who do terrible things to you. And it's possible to honestly, genuinely pray for those who have ill intentions for you. So that's what the gospel does. That's what God, through Christ, makes possible in the human condition, even as poopy as it all gets. That's why I became a Democrat. Because <laughs> I wanted to be a better Christian. So, a couple quotes. The status of recognition belongs to the conglomeration of Euro-American scholars, ministers, and lay folk who have, over the centuries, used their economic, academic, religious, and political dominance to create the illusion that the Bible read through their experience is the Bible read correctly. So there were a couple of missionaries back in the day, 1500s, a John Sargent, and to Timothy Woodridge, and they were working with some of the tribes in the early days. And uh, um, one of them felt like these natives couldn't really, you know, become good Christians without a school. So John Sargent built a Bible school uh, for biblical training, and he felt that these natives could not fulfill this mandate of following Christ, so he began a school with the goal of, quote, the total eradication of all that marks them as native to root out their vicious habits and to change their whole way of living. So that was his uh, way of appealing to all that. Another missionary during the same era uh, rebuked these natives because they were beginning to worship God in their church services using their native culture, their native drumming and their music, etc. But he was horrified because they were using their, their uh, demonic Indian ways to worship the Lord. But the natives protested saying, quote, they knew no harm in it. They made their application to the great God and to no other. So then Woodridge rebukes them and instructs them. And uh, he says, furthermore, much to his satisfaction, quote, those of them who had been best taught were much troubled that they had taken so wrong a step. So both Sargent and Woodridge condemned the natives for making Christianity, quote, unfamiliar to their English sensibilities. So most of us would know about native music and dance and, and through a, a, a typical intertribal powwow. But for us as, as indigenous people, we were always forbidden to use our native culture, our music, our dance, our drumming as expressions of our humanity. So we couldn't ever be fully human unless we created ourselves in the likeness and the image of another kind of human, a white humanity, a Eurocentric humanity. But we could never love ourselves 
so we could love our neighbor because our humanity was pretty much demonized and was looked at as something that needed to be rooted out of us, all of our vicious habits. Now, even though that, those words are from the 1600s, those words have continued throughout American church history up until today. There's a whole segment of Native American Baptists, Pentecostals, etc., who are suit and tie, short hair people, and will not use any of their native culture because it's of the devil. And they have to do that to maintain good standing in their denomination, plus they actually believe that. So in my humble opinion, there is a kind of self-loathing. And there's something that doesn't connect for them to be fully human, which I think all of us suffer. Because the beauty and wonder of the Creator is not expressed through the beauty and wonder of, of these human beings who bring the sights and the sounds. So, you know, in Revelation, it says that in the, and when everything's all wrapped up, that around the throne of God, there'll be every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be, be gathered together. And so there will be the, the many sounds, the many dances, the many movements gathered around the throne of God. So I like to think about our humanity in terms of Imago Dei, you know, we're created in the image of God. So God says... Let us create humanity in Genesis 1, verse 26. Let us create humanity in our likeness and in our image, plural. And so God creates God's self, male man and female man. So female man is no less the, the mirrored image of God as male man. So, so female man portrays, expresses, mirrors the character of God's being no less accurately than male man. And male man in his maleness completely, totally is incapable of expressing the fullness of God's self. So God is community. God is the, the interrelationship, the interconnection, the divine dance between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So before the beginning begins, you have this beautiful picture of community expressed within the oneness of God's self as the Father and the Son look upon the face of the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son look upon the face of the Father. As the Father and the Son look upon the face, there, there's a sense of community. So the community of God's being is expressed through diversity. Diversity is not a recent social, cultural topic of conversation. Diversity existed before the beginning began. So then when God wants to create the earth, he speaks to the pregnant womb of the earth, though the earth is our mother. So the earth provides all the oxygen and the water and the life and sustains us. At no point in time is the earth dependent on humanity for its existence. At all points in time, humanity is totally dependent upon the earth for its existence. So God provides us through the, through the, the goodness of our mother, the earth. So God wants to create animals. He speaks to the womb of the earth, and he says, let the earth bring forth animals. So we got giraffes and zebras and buffalo and elk and deer and beavers, etc., etc. Diversity. And then when God wants to create plants, he speaks to the womb of the earth, and out of, he says, let the earth produce. Let the earth bring forth. So out of the earth comes palm trees, apple trees, date trees, cherry trees, plum trees diversity. And then things that fly and things that swim and things that crawl. Then when God wants to create God's self, male man, female man. So some would say that you cannot have unity in the absence of diversity. That unity is impossible 
where diversity does not exist. Otherwise, you have a, a kind of uniformity, a kind of conformity, a kind of sameness that does not reflect the true reality of God's being and God's self. So that's Imago Dei. And yet, where are Native people in the life of the American church as Imago Dei? So I think that if it talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, Paul is saying that the church is like uh, the human body, eyes and arms and feet and hands, etc. And in verse 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the hand can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Those parts of the body that, are, that don't appear to be so important are actually deserving of even greater honor. And yet, if, if you look at some upcoming national Christian conference and you look at all the speakers... When was the last time, let's take the Justice Conference out of the question, when was the last time you saw a Native American man or woman as a, as a national speaker at some national Christian conference? You look in some magazine, women's magazine, Christianity Today, there are all these big ads for all these Christian conferences. My guess would be you've never seen a Native person. And when was the last time you read a good theological book written by a Native author? How many times have you listened to a native speaker in a, in a Caucasian, largely white church? So we have 400 years of missions, almost 500 in the United States. Yet 500 years of missions has not produced one single native man or woman who's recognized in the body of Christ as a person of spiritual stature and authority. And so I think the the Eurocentric expression of Jesus and the kingdom has said to the Native American expression, we don't need you. So if you look at a thing and you can't identify value in it, then you'll have no perceived sense of need for it. And if you have no perceived sense of need for it, then you get along without it. So what do the Indians have that we need? We've got the money, the Bible schools, the big churches. We've got Christian TV, radio, literature. We've got all the money. We're in the government. And what do they have that we need in the dominant culture church? They're just a needy mission field. So that's our role in the American church. We are cast as the perpetual needy mission field. So when Native Americans come up in a church conversation, it's like, how can we go help the Indians? I know, let's take our youth group to Warm Springs and we'll paint some buildings and we'll do vacation Bible school and then we'll go down to some Paiute reservations down around Burns in Nevada. Then we can go to some other reservations up in Spokane, etc. But we only think about the host people of the land, those that God put here before any others for a particular purpose and God's redemptive plans for the nations. We only think about indigenous people as less than us in some capacity. And then we sort of trivialize and dehumanize and depersonalize Native people by making us sports mascots. So you'd never hear of a sports team in some urban center of, of some big city called, we're going to call, this is, these are going to be, the, these are the Harlem niggers and the San Antonio Spicks and the San Francisco Chinks. But we can say Cleveland Indians, and we can say all this other, and nobody even cares. What is it in the consciousness of the American public that we don't say anything about the depersonalization and dehumanization of Native people as sports mascots? So, so, so what is that? So now, 
here in these conversations, what is Jesus inviting us into in terms of becoming better human beings? So you know I love white people, right? My wife is white. Uh, I pastored an all-white church for 13 years, so I love white people. I want white people to be really awesome white people. And the same with black people and Latino people and wherever we are. And I want native people to be really awesome native people. That's what I think God makes possible when God makes God's self available in Jesus. So then Jesus invites us into his path, into his journey. So how do we love our neighbors as ourselves, even if they're different? Our gay, lesbian neighbors, our new immigrant neighbors, our wealthy Republican neighbors, our whatever our neighbors, whoever they are. How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? So I think that's where we have to go beyond ourselves, and that's where God meets us in this place of our own need. So one time, my son Andrew was about six or seven, and he was playing with his friend Aaron, who was white. And uh, Aaron went home and he said to his mom and dad, Mom and dad, you know that Andrew Twist? He's half Indian and half human. So I think it's pretty funny. But some people go, oh, should I laugh? Is this like a trick question? I hate those trick questions, right? And uh, so Aaron was just using the best language he could use to describe the difference that he saw between himself and my son. Now, my other friend in the... Where we live, uh, he's uh, Caucasian, she's Hawaiian, and their kids are, are a little bit mixed, and they go to a nice church, and church kids, and little girls, and sleepovers, and, and so they're having a little sleepover with these little seven-year-old uh, girls, and when the little uh, Hawaiian girl noticed that the other girls weren't praying, playing with her anymore, and they said, uh, she said, well, how come you don't, are not playing with me? And they said, well, it's because you're brown. So where does that stuff come from? Because she's going to a good, evangelical, charismatic, loving, Bible-preaching church. And these are all little kids of parents who all go to that church. So, so where does that stuff come from? Now, there was a USA Today article that came out two weeks ago. And uh, you might have remembered, it said, For the first time in American history, there are more brown babies born than white babies. Do you guys remember that article? So there was two Indians talking, and um, so one, the young man was saying to his grandpa, Grandpa, did you just read that article? There are now more, for the first time in American history, more brown babies born than white babies. And the grandpa said, second time. So now let's think about this. I'm 58. All of us baby boomers, we croak in the next 25 years, say, right? Makes me 85. If I live to be 85, that'll be cool. But, um, but I'll, be ready, I'll be ready to check out. So largest generation in American history, we all check out. So now this population vacuum is filled by people of color. So the average Caucasian family today has 1.6 children per household. The average brown family has an average of three to five children per household. If you just do the simple math, if we make it to the year 2100, birth rates, death rates, baby boomers check out, it could be that six or even seven out of every 10 Americans in 2100 will be a person of color. That's pretty huge, right? 
Now, the temptation for people of color will be to get even because we can. Because we'll vote our folks into office, and we will lobby them to pass legislation to favor us the way we perceive white people have favored themselves in the political process. Now, the white people will be tempted to protect what little they have left because we know how they are when they move into our neighborhoods. But by and large, wealth and power will still be situated largely in the Caucasian uh, communities. So what is Jesus Does Jesus have anything to say about all of that? And if we we have notions of the kingdom of heaven, and we talk about, we use words like the rule and reign of God, expressed through Christ in the kingdom, what does that mean? We we were talking the other night, and uh, some of us, and uh, how Americans were fond of military metaphors. But we're also fond of capitalist metaphors and individual metaphors when we imagine this this idea of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in in my book here, I talk about, here's some Native American worldview perspectives. So let me just give you a couple, and then we're just about out of time. I wanted to give you all the easy stuff first. So among the Yupik people of the western coast of Alaska, They have ideas about human and non-human persons and how animals give themselves to feed us and we're to receive their life. And so they have a couple of of, uh, social uh, patterns. So one of them is when you say you eat a chicken, you eat everything on the chicken, all the bone and not the bones, but the gristle and this and that and all the tissue. And you you, you pick it all done and you do not feed the bones to, to dogs. You do not throw the bones away. You either burn them or you bury them or depending on the animal, you take the bones back to where it came from because the the primary value is gratitude and respect. You are grateful that that animal provided the food to nourish you so you treat this, this gift with respect. What if we thought about the earth with gratitude and respect? Moving away from agnostic dualism that divides the reality into sacred, secular, natural, spiritual. And from an indigenous perspective, everything is spiritual and we're all connected together in this notion of family, which invites us then to live with gratitude and respect. I think those are really good biblical values, but it's it's expressed in an indigenous worldview framework versus a kind of conquering uh, view of of creation as being a source of of natural resources that we conquer and manipulate to create a better lifestyle so we can be happier and prosper. And we're neither grateful, except we can make a profit, and we're certainly not respectful. Another one would be uh, this whole notion of, of, uh, well, similarly, but, but natural spiritual. Like, all of us are spiritual. I don't believe there is such a thing as sacred secular. So somebody says, I'm going to leave my job and go into full-time ministry. I think it's a dumb statement. I think you're already in full-time living out of this gospel story in whatever context we find ourselves. So full-time ministry has nothing to do with where somebody gets their paycheck, whether I get it from the corporation or I get it with a church signature on it. It doesn't make me a minister. 
Jesus says that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to live out this faith in the context of everyday life. So when Jesus was talking with a woman of the well, uh, it wasn't because he did a demographic research and determined that people like her congregated at the well during these times. So if you wanted to do a good evangelistic strategy, you you would create these sort of places to create those contexts. Jesus was just thirsty. And he hung out with the people who were hanging out around the place where you go. So in terms of how we live our lives, we have wells. What we would call well-worn social paths that lead us to the golf course, that lead us to the job, that lead us to the, whatever it's called, 12 Brothers Pub, or whatever it's called. Because we were there praying for the people who were drinking, obviously. (laughs) And so all these well-worn social paths. And how do we live out this this good news in those contexts? So, closing up here. I think the church in America suffers because of the absence of the perspectives that God has put within our Native American communities. Not Not only from the point of something is missing, but from the point of view something is not correct in our thinking that we can still consider Native people a certain kind of way. We suffer because of our emotional poverty that's culturally informed by 500 years of U.S. policy. So Garland was, was talking about here in Bend, there were a number of establishments that not that many years ago said no Indians or dogs allowed. And not that many years ago here in Bend, there were sundowner laws where Indians had to be out of the city limits by the time the sun went down. Or you would face the wrath of. And so when Columbus arrived, there were some 20 million Native people. In 1897, there were only 230,000 Native people left. All of our kids were removed from our homes and sent to boarding schools, most of which you don't, most of you don't even know there was such a thing as Indian boarding schools. Yet because of how my mom was raised and my aunties and uncles were all raised, I'm the son of boarding school parents, so there's a real wound in my life because my mom never learned, grew up with a family. She didn't know how to be a mom. My dad never knew how to be a dad. And they had kids. Now, I'm a father of four sons. I don't have a clue how to be a father. So the suicide epidemic in many of our communities, the alcoholism, the violence, the unemployment, all of those things can be tied back to those boarding schools. We're going to have to outlive that. So what is it in America that allows us to be largely unaware of the reality of of our Native American brothers and sisters? So this is my invitation. So as of today, I would like to invite you to no longer think about Native people as a mission field, but to think about us as co-equal participants in the life and the story and the message of Jesus Christ. That you view us as having something necessary and vital and important to help inform culturally your imaginations about the Bible and about God and about theology and politics and all of that. And that together we truly become, we begin to imagine, live out what it means to be one. Because here in Bend in Central Oregon, You know, it's typically I live on the other side of the mountains, and so this is redneck country and cowboy country, but now it's becoming pub and yuppie coffee country. And so (laughs) things are all changing, right? 
So with new immigrants, whatever, whoever they are, wherever they come from, we're being called to engage in other ways. And part of it means to, to live our lives in humility. Here's the last story. I'm now <laughs> in minus minutes. So an old Indian man one time said, it's, sometimes it's hard being an Indian. Among the Karuk and Northern California tribes, every couple of years they'll have a renewing the world ceremony. So it's a time when they come together to fix the world which is broken. So you have two tribes, two neighboring tribes that meet together around a ceremonial ground. And to begin with, it's like a competition. Who can sing the loudest and who can dance the hardest and who can serve the most and there's not any participation, and the women are not even in the, in the, in the ceremonial grounds in the house. And, and then the second day, there's a little bit of a coming together, and the third and the fourth. And eventually, there's a coming together and a dialogue and a discussion and eating, and for 10 days. And then at the closing, both tribes are singing together, and they're dancing together, and the women are together, and they're repairing the world. They're renewing the world, and the world becomes repaired. So this Indian man said, you know, us Indian people, we're not responsible for very much. But one of the things we're responsible for, for is renewing the world. And he said, sometimes it's hard being an Indian. So my invitation to you is to say, sometimes it's hard being a human being. And all of us in our humanity express something of the character of God's being in that humanity. And Jesus then invites us to become more like him in terms of the ways that we imagine God, the ways we live out this faith in Christ. Aha wado haha waikanda hido hey oh hey Yo hey yo hey away away naya way ah hey yo hey Yahweh away away naya way ah hey yo hey Aha wado ha ha why can't I do hey yo hey Yo, hey, yo, hey, away, away, naya, way, aho, hey, yo, hey, he, away, 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 naya, way, aho, hey, yo, hey. Thank you, Creator. May we walk in beauty all around as respectful and grateful human beings. I hope.